And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Charlie Jane Anders on the Cood Street Podcast. Hi. Hey, here we are. Welcome, Hi. Charlie Jane. It's so exciting to be here at the Motel 6. I'm really, really excited <laughs> to talk to both of you. This That's is so great. Great to have you here. And and hey. and we're, we're doing this just a, just days or a week before your second novel comes out, uh, City right. in the Middle of the Night. And we want to hear about that, but I, I, I should – well, I, I, you will see my review of it sooner than later. But it's a lot different from uh, your first novel. In tone, it's just a complete pivot. So tell me, why is it so different? You know, basically what happened is it was, a, it was early 2014. Uh-huh. I had just sold all the Birds of the Sky to Tor. I think I sold it to Tor in March 2014. And they actually gave me a two-book deal, so I knew I had to write a second book. And I was just sitting there thinking, what if all the Birds of the Sky fails miserably? And I need to show that I can do something a bit different <laughs> And, you know, and also what if it does well and I want to show that I've got some range and stuff. So I kind of made a conscious decision to do something really different. And I also kind of been getting this feeling that in my work, humor was this kind of crutch that I was leaning on or this prop that I was leaning on whenever, you know, I was faced with mm. writing situations that I wasn't really equipped to handle, like some some of the really intense emotional stuff, some of the really intense character stuff, I could always kind of fall back on my humor and kind of use it to paper over the cracks. And so I thought, what if I write a book that's not as overtly funny or as whimsical or as silly or whatever, and just, you know, try to kind of focus on the aspects of my writing that are a little bit different. And also at the same time, I wanted to kind of do justice to this idea of a novel set on this other planet that humans have colonized that's uh-huh. tidally locked that's like a really tough environment for humans to live in i wanted to write something that was a little bit more kind of tonally appropriate to that kind of you know setting i guess something that's about kind of humans trying to survive in a difficult location and stuff well it's also a remote far future setting that's uh that doesn't have any of the kind of contemporary um uh, references I mean, a, a lot of what uh, made all the birds in the sky seem friendly is just gone. This is yeah. this is a different planet. It's a hazarded place. It's far in the future. These people are mostly miserable most of the time. Oh God, don't say that. It's not a depressing novel. I promise. To those of you who haven't read it yet, it's not a depressing novel. I promise. It gets it's, not at the end anyway. <laughs> it's, it's, there's some dark parts in it. What would your elevator pitch for this book be? I mean, so my elevator, yeah. Yeah. So my elevator pitch for this book is a girl gets banished into eternal darkness and survives by learning to communicate with the creatures that live there. Which is exactly what it is. And it becomes a re- I mean because of this split this dichotomy between light and dark between the two main protagonists of the book. I mean, the two main protagonists are Sophie and Mouth, really, I suppose. But it's also Bianca, who was Sophie's friend. They start off together, they separate, and then there's an arc to that relationship. That really becomes the core dichotomy of the book, doesn't it? That that contrast between their view of the world and how they interact and what they represent. Yeah, I mean, I think I I really did hang it on the Sophie-Bianca relationship more than anything, but also Sophie and Mouth and Mouth and Alyssa and, you know, everything. But, um, yeah, I mean, the thing about Sophie and Bianca that seemed really relevant as I was writing it was that their 
a lot of what's going on between them is kind of to do with differences in class, differences right. in privilege, differences in their sort of assumptions about the world and, you know, what it means to build a just society and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was sort of, there's a lot going on there that's kind of only, that you kind of only really get to the bottom of, I think, by the end of the book, maybe. Uh, but I, you know, I liked that idea of, Sophie makes this impulsive decision to save her friend at the start of the book, right. and it ends up costing her a lot more than she expects it to. It sort of felt like an Ian McEwen kind of opening. You know, Ian McEwen always starts his books with somebody makes a rash decision, and then it, the consequences are a lot worse than they realize, or something really drastic happens that has consequences that kind of reverberate. Yeah, and that's kind of you. You couldn't use the title atonement on this one. Oh, you could have. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I wish. I wish I could have. You know, that would have been awesome. It's one of the things you we know. should mention, though, because at the beginning of the novel, you talked about the beginning, and, and, and Sophie and Bianca are great characters. I think I think these are your best characters, the four characters oh, that oh are Oh, my God. Thank you. Uh, but it's a school story. It starts off as a young working-class girl who's got a, uh, a scholarship to what in Germany they would call the Gymnasium. And, <laughs> um, and she's got this upper-class friend, who is spoiled rotten. And the, the Ian McEwen part of it seems to me is when is Sophie going to catch on to what a elite snob uh, Bianca really is? Because Bianca is one of the, I'm not giving anything away, I don't think, but Bianca doesn't believe in Sophie's discovery about these natives at all. She just thinks they're there to be controlled. They're, they're, they're there to be herded. Yeah. Uh, she's a colonialist. She's an elitist. She's a wealthy brat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think Bianca starts out the novel with really good intentions. Mm -hmm. Like, I think she has really good intentions for a lot of the novel, actually. And, you know, uh, right now, I mean, I didn't, when I started writing the book, as I said, it was 2014. It was a very different world. Uh, I even started really working on it in late 2013. Um, It was not the world we're living in now where we've kind of all been smacked upside the head by what happens when Mm. people who have unconscious privilege and really good intentions don't, you know, kind of, check themselves <laughs> but uh, i mean i really wanted you to believe in sophie's belief in in bianca and yeah. let's you know and there's a version of this novel in fact until fairly late in the process there was a version of this novel where the thing where again this isn't really a spoiler you can read the first couple chapters online um the thing where sophie kind of decides to take the fall for bianca stealing a little mm. bit of money and it blows up in her face that originally happened on page one of the novel Mm. and then i basically went back and added like that section leading up to that where we really get to spend some time with those characters first and see why sophie is willing to do that for bianca exactly and why you know bianca actually is really nice to sophie she's a really genuinely sweet person at the start of the book and you know you she never completely loses that she just goes through a lot as they both do um, but I wanted also, their bond to be important. Well, I mean, there's one of the things that um, I think is fascinating is that as, as remote as this is from, from our own lives, and this is one of the things that uh, it's actually related to this Washington Post thing you wrote a couple of days ago about how science fiction is useful. One of the interesting things to me about the character of, uh, of Bianca, who is the, the not the heiress, but she essentially is, um, I'm, 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 I'm seeing her played by Saoirse Ronan now for some reason. <laughs> and, and I mean, she's actually, she's actually at least, she's, she's Asian or at least part Asian. Uh, okay. Asian, because uh, we but, say it's a couple points. Anyway, sorry, go on. But she, she's also a kind of character that's kind of risky to draw because you're talking about a radicalized student leftist 
who can't let go of her privilege even when she's radicalized. Yeah, and again, I feel like that is feels more relevant than I had expected it to. Exactly. In 2019, I feel like in 2019 that suddenly is a lot more relevant than than I had expected. You know. Very much so. Um, how hard did you find it to tr- to keep those characters sympathetic? Because no matter what happens through the book, we have to rem- we, we remain convinced of an innate level of decency to to them all. Even though Bianca remain is is the or sorry, Sophie is the most sympathetic character in the book. I mean, I I worked a lot on on making Sophie sympathetic in the sense that even though she goes through a lot and she's working through a lot of trauma throughout the book, like there's a, that's a major theme with her character. I feel like she's somebody who has, I mean, I think that's innately sympathetic to begin with. I think that most of us can sympathize with somebody who's who's dealing with a lot of trauma and a lot of uh, difficult stuff. She's also a very hopeful character, and I feel like her, she keeps being hopeful even after all this stuff happens. And um, in terms of the, and, you know, in terms of the character of Bianca, I think to some extent you keep caring about her because Sophie keeps caring about her. And yeah. because... You know, again, Bianca clearly has good intentions and wants to make the world a better place. And, um, you know, to bring up another sort of influence of mine, like it's sort of like, I don't know, it's it's sort of like Middlemarch a little bit, you know? Mm. Um, she she really wants to, to do good and make the world better. She just doesn't really know how. And she doesn't know how to be conscious of her own position in that world or her own level right. of privilege, which is one of the things I think is fascinating. And the other character... Um, who I thought was fascinating was Mouse. And I, this is a bad habit I've gotten into, and I've, it's, I've only been doing this the last couple of years, but I mentioned Sarah Sharonin. I'm looking at Mouse, and the first thing I see is Alex Borstein in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, wow. Okay. The manager. Uh, she's tough. She's a survivor. She's smart. Uh, but she's also a tragic figure because she's lost her heritage. Right. And that's another fairly relevant. But- yeah. Oh, you haven't seen the show? Well, there's I haven't a, seen, yeah. I've heard it's amazing. It's, it's, it is and it isn't. I mean, it's, it's really, really well done, and it's a fantasy version of the 50s. But this one actor uh, who plays uh, uh, Mrs. Maisel's manager, she's tremendous in it. Uh, but anyway, the, the idea of the, the, the tough, scrappy fighter, the name Mouse even, the other thing it reminded me of was uh, uh, the Mouse character in... Um, um, Chip Delaney's Nobo. Oh, oh my God. I forgot about that. I didn't realize I was stealing a name. <laughs> no, no, it's, from Chip it's Delaney. not quite the same name. It's not quite the same name, I don't think. Okay. Wow. Uh, I should look back at that. Yeah, I mean, uh, the character of Mouth was a, not a late addition, but like a relatively late addition to the novel. You know, there was a draft of the novel. I think I remember talking a lot about this when I was in Kansas City for Worldcon because I had a basically a more or less complete draft that was just the story oh. of Sophie and Bianca. And there was this group of smugglers who helped them travel across the world, but the smugglers were just kind of this group of smugglers. And I felt like the novel needed something else, and so I decided to promote one of them to being a protagonist or to mm-hmm. being a narrator. And that's where Mouth came in, and she kind of just took on a life of her own and kind of grew and grew until she was much more important to the book. Uh, by the end. And I don't know. I mean, I, you know, part of what's fun about Mouth is that she's kind of a brawler. She's a tough character. She's been in a million bar fights. She does. She's killed a ton of people over the years. 
But then she has this tragic backstory that we kind of slowly find out about. And it kind of ended up playing into the themes of the book because a lot yeah. of the themes of the book have to do with how you deal with – like because – backing up slightly, this book takes place on a tidally locked planet. Um, I became really obsessed with the passage of time and how people reckon the passage of time and how much of that goes away once you don't have the sun rising and setting anymore. And once you can't look up at the sky and kind of tell what time it is and that kind of stuff. And so I started to think about historical time and, you know, the fact that we're really, you know, even on this planet, we, we often have a distorted sense of how long ago things happened. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I remember during the Balkan conflict reading that there are people in Croatia and, and Serbia and Bosnia for whom things that happened a thousand years ago are still recent history. Those are things that, you know, that that's like still really, really in the present for them, and they're still mad about it. And then there are people in this country for whom segregation is ancient history, even if in some cases they were alive for it. People yeah. who were, were, were even adults during segregation will say, well, that was, that's ancient history. That happened a million years ago. It's not relevant now. That's one of and, the issues that it came up in, in in the news today. For example, this business of the governor of Virginia having oh, hosted this racist thing, and it was in 1984. I mean, 1984. If it had been 1954, I might have given him a little bit of a break. But oh, 1984, man. we knew it. We know. But to get back to your society, I mean, you're also dealing with this issue in the way the two contrasting cities. There are really two major cities that figure into the novel. And one of them is very regimented. One of them basically has a TikTok man in it. And right. everything is by the book, everything, because they need to enforce time as a, uh, as a social and political force since they don't have it as a natural force. Right. And the other city is more like Portland. <laughs> I love that comparison. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was interested in these two different ways of, of organizing human society on this planet where, you know, everything is so different. And what happens, like, once you mess around with our sleep schedule and once you, like, either, you know, try to legislate it or just let it go and just let people sleep whenever they want to and work whenever they want to and do whatever they feel like it, how does, you know, what kind of effects, what kind of knock-on effects does that have? And you do end up with this very regimented society or this very kind of chaotic, you know, anything-goes kind of party-all-the-time society. And... um, I don't know, that contrast was something that I got really obsessed with and fascinated with during the long period of time when I was just kind of scribbling in notebooks and kind of just making up stuff about this planet in my head, kind of. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, you've said that the origins for this book stretch back to 2013, 2014, uh, and that you're obviously, during the time you were working on this book, uh, The City in the Middle of the Night, you were also dealing with completing all the birds in the sky, it was coming out, it got this fabulous response. How difficult was it to focus on this while all the birds in the sky was happening? I mean, that was, it was a major challenge. And like, um, I did have to keep putting it aside for like line edits and other edits on all the birds in the sky and for promotional stuff. I think I was working at it pretty steadily, but that's part of why I had to quit working on io9 in you know the spring of, of 2016 mm. was because city uh, in the middle of the night particularly was not going to get done like I was able to write all the birds of the sky and a few previous novels that never saw the light of the day while uh, working on io9 but it became clear to me in the spring of 2016 that this book because of how complicated it was and how 
how much heavy lifting there is in it, I really needed to be able to focus on it and not have any major distractions, at least for a while. And so I really did end up, you know, just quitting my day job and holding up and working on this um, without any kind of, you know, interruption because of that. It was like a, you know, it's a much more challenging book in a lot of ways. So was the point that you left Iron Io 9 the point where you'd say you really decided that you were going to be a novelist and really make that work? That had been my goal since uh, since forever. I mean, I had always wanted to – I had always thought of fiction writing as my quote-unquote career and everything else as being just like a day job or whatever. So it was really just – I felt like this was an opportunity to finally do something that I had always wanted to do. But it was part of the impetus for leaving I and I was definitely that I had kind of bitten off more than I could chew with the city in the middle of the night. Mm. And, you know, it was it was kind of a mess. It was like a big, sprawly – gigantic mess and i needed to really whip it into shape and you know part of whipping it into shape was really coming up with you know that inciting incident with sophie and bianca and then where that leads to and that basically took you know through to the summer of 2016 to kind of work that out there's a interesting a, a, a curious just a curiosity on my part i guess uh that the idea of a tide-locked planet which is it's not entirely new in science fiction. I mean, lots of novels about Mercury before they discovered that Mercury wasn't really as tide-locked as we used to think it was. Did you start out with that? Did you start out like Hal Clement, thinking up this planet and then putting a society on it? Or did you start with thinking about this society and these relationships and figure that a tide-locked planet is the best way to do it? I absolutely started with the tidally locked planet. I mean, that was where it all came from. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was it was completely different from the way I've done any other writing project because I, uh, you know, I was working at io9. We had a lot of science content on the site. Uh-huh. We were writing science articles every day, and I was reading about tidally locked planets. And one of the things that I became aware of was that um, if we colonize another planet, it's almost certainly going to be tidally locked. Hmm. Like, you know... I mean, you never know, but apparently, like, what we're finding is that, you know, three quarters, roughly three quarters of the stars in the Milky Way are red giants, or sorry, red dwarfs. Uh-huh. They're, they're M dwarfs, as they're called. And in order to be within the habitable zone of those stars, um, you have to be close, you have to be much closer than we are to our sun. And if that happens, and, you're going to be tidally locked. And that locked. happens, you're going to be tidally locked. And we've, we've started finding a ton of, idol- of, of exoplanets, uh, like the Trappist system is one where we found a bunch of exoplanets. And as, as far as we can tell, there's like several planets in that system which are all tidally locked and all within the habitable zone. Mm. And so I really think, you know, I really think that the tidally locked planet novel is going to become a major genre. It's going to become, you know, it's going to become a thing. And I wanted to get there first. And, you know, I'm sure other people will, will do it with more scientific accuracy than I did it. I'm sure other people will do it in different ways than I did it. Um, but I think that it's going to, in the next 10 years, you're going to see a, a slew of tidally locked planet novels because we're going to keep, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope launches in 2021. And when that happens, we're going to actually start being able to get more data about these planets, and we're going to learn more about them. And so we're you, gonna, were, you were working from a hard science fiction premise so from the I beginning. I was, and you know, I don't, I wouldn't call this book hard science fiction because uh, you know I did talk to scientists while I was working on it, but mm-hmm. I think the science is probably not as accurate as it could be if I was really focused on that. But um, and I, I, you know, there were lots of places where I just kind of made the choice to to 
do what served the story yeah. kind of. Um, but yeah, I, I was, it was inspired by real science. It was inspired by a sense that this is, you know, this is our future. If we do actually manage to colonize other planets, this is where we're going. And so, and then I, you know, mm. it kind of, once I got into the idea of writing about a tidally like planet, that's when the kind of poetic, I don't want to say poetic license, but that's when the imagery kind of took over. Yeah. And this idea of being caught between these two extremes of like blazing light and extreme darkness, frozen darkness. Um, you know, I mean, what I keep saying is that All the Birds in the Sky is also a novel about being caught between two extremes well, yeah. of science and magic. And I think that that is kind of a, a thing for me. It's kind of the uh, exploring being in between, you know, two opposites or whatever. And so this just kind of took a hold of my imagination. And that, that's why I guess I would say it's probably not a hard science fiction novel because in the end, my imagination was what kind of allowed me to write it. And in the end, I talked to scientists, but a lot of it was just me dreaming stuff up. It's also a so it's also got mythic resonance because if you're talking about living in this zone between darkness and 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 burning heat, you're talking about Midgard. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that, but that's that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, and you know, I just it felt very poetic and very kind of like it does. A, yeah. It felt like a fable. Like that's what you know. Uh, I felt it feels a little bit like a fable as well as like you know a science fiction novel in a way. You said earlier that writing The City in the Middle of the Night really was, it felt like you were biting off more than you could chew. How important do you think it is, though, that a writer does bite bite off more than they can chew? I mean, isn't that how you expand your skill set, find out what you can do? I think that that's incredibly important, yeah. And I, I always, like, in all those, like, you know, writing advice things that I wrote for io9 back in the day, I feel like that was a thing that I kept trying to tell people over and over again is that, you know, it's good to get out of your comfort zone. It's good to try things that you're not sure if you can pull them off. And, you know, I think that uh, there's always a sense that, you know, there's the kind of safe novel to write that's kind of the the novel that's similar to stuff that you've read mm. from other people and also the novel that's similar to stuff that you've already written. And, you know... I think, I mean, when I wrote All the Birds in the Sky, that also felt like I was bitten off more than I could chew, to be honest. It felt like I was trying to do a lot of stuff that was really difficult, and I wasn't sure if I was going to pull any of it or even, you know, some of it off. And um, that was part of why I was like, I better do something different for the next book, just in case I didn't pull it off. But, you know, (laughs) but I think it's really important. I really shouldn't quote Robert Browning now, should I? (laughs) A man's reach should exceed his grasp. Right. And be able to, but um, but I, I, I can see that because there was um, there's there's some dark elements in all the birds in the sky, but there's a cozy feeling to it too. They're likable characters. You meet them in school. Uh, we talked about this when you were on the podcast to talk about that. The first first half of it reads like a nice young adult novel. Um, I don't know if it reads like a nice young adult novel. It's actually well, not pretty nice, but dark and br- I've, I was surprised by is, how much people were scarred by the first half of that novel. Anyway, well, that, well, that's interesting. But they're characters you want to meet again. They're characters you want to come back and hang out with. Right. And I, I can see the temptation to just say, "Let's have more of these characters. Let's 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 do more of this sort of thing." Uh, and this is why I think the, the the characters in the new novel are to me, to my mind, more intriguing is because. You don't really know what's going to happen with them, and you're not really sure you want to hang out with any of them that long, although you admire them. 
Well, you're really doing a great job of selling this novel for me, but okay, it's, like, okay, really. it's really depressing and you wouldn't want to spend time with these characters. <laughs> Thanks for that. Well, no. I, it is probably worth saying it is very engaging and very enjoyable and very uh, Thank you, fulfilling. I, 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 <laughs> ignore Gary. He's just being a bit of a critic. No, but I mean, it's true. I'm saying, I mean, okay, let me put it this way. In the, my sense is that you're going for complexity rather than likability. I think that's fair. And, like, honestly, another part of me kind of going out of my comfort zone with this novel and stretching out and not doing the thing that I had done before, which I really did make a conscious effort to kind of stretch my my writing mm-hmm. abilities in various ways in this novel. Um, part of that was writing characters who I hadn't written before, at least trying to. Yeah. And, you know... Mm-hmm inevitably you always have like echoes of the characters you've written before and anything you write. Like there's always echoes. There's always like things that kind of the voice is always going to be a little bit similar because it's you, because it's the author, it's the same author. But for example, Sophie, I really thought about like how I hadn't really written a shy protagonist before, like somebody who isn't going to just stand up and give a speech, somebody who isn't going to blunder into a situation and start, Mm -hmm. you know, barking questions at people you know both patricia and lawrence in all the birds of the sky are very assertive very yeah. outgoing people and that's i think true of most of my protagonists and most of the things i've written uh and i think it's true of most protagonists in science fiction and fantasy generally uh it's a, a genre that's very much weighted towards people who are assertive and who are kind of outgoing and extroverted and i sort of thought you know what if there's somebody who is really quiet and withdrawn who will never kind of stand up and take charge of the situation in that way, but still is the hero of the story and still drives the action through the choices they make. And that was kind of how I did it with Sophie. And I, I found it really, you know, challenging, but also super rewarding to write that. I thought that mm-hmm. to write her like that. And I thought that was like, you know, it made me really happy to do that. And the character of Alyssa becomes important as somebody to, for some Sophie to play off against to some extent. Yeah. Whose own caution sort of motivates Sophie. There's one thing we're not mentioning, and it's it's hard to talk about the last third of the novel without getting into spoilers. But there's we've talked about the two cities, the two societies. There's another society which I think is the most visionary part of the novel uh, that doesn't come in until the end, and it's a really interesting. I guess it's okay to say it because we we, we find out fairly early on that these crocodiles are more than they seem. Um, and toward the end, we find out something about them and something about – we find out about a lot of things. Actually, now I'm thinking about it, there are four societies in this novel. There are the two cities. There are the aliens, the crocodiles, or the Gilead. How did you pronounce Gilead, that? Gilead, I think. And then there's this substantial backstory of the Generation Starship, which we learn more as we go along. Um, and one of the things that occurred to me as I was finishing this novel was – is there going to be a story about that generation starship somewhere? That's a really good question. I mean, so, I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the the aliens, the Galette, or the crocodiles have their own society. And, you know, it's the title of the book. Well, um, yeah. And, you know, I think that that's I, – I want people to kind of know that's what we're driving towards. And uh, oh, good. I'm the, glad you said that because that comes <clears> up in the review that I'm, I'm halfway through the book. And I'm thinking, okay, this city is not in the middle of the night, and here's this other city. And that's not in the middle of the night, so there's got to be another city. In the middle of the night, yeah. In and in fact, I've had people, I've had people kind of try to gently correct me that, like, no, this 
city that we started the book out in is not in the middle of the night. And I'm like, no, no, we, we get there. Don't worry. We get there. Um, but yeah, Why in terms of city in the middle of dusk, <laughs> you know, I want I keep joking that I wanted to call this book twilight because it takes place in <laughs> twilight, but that title was already taken. And so was the twilight zone. And I don't know. Uh, but yeah, in terms of the generation ship, um, I always wanted there to be some, some stuff about what happened on the generation ship. Yeah. Because, again, like getting back to the people in the Balkans who are obsessed with things that happened a thousand years ago. And, you know, part of how we define our identity as people is based on stuff from history that we are still mm. working through. And, you know, I felt like I, I had more of a, a belief in these people as future humans if they had their own history that they were still kind of, you know, coping with or in denial about or, right. you know – and I felt like that had to be in there. And, you know, part of what happens with future histories is that um, oftentimes there's this kind of sweeping under the rug of, like, certain kinds of difference. Like, mm-hmm. either it's like, well, everybody's interbred to the point where everybody's just mixed race, so we're just going to not have any ethnic groups in the future. Or we're going to mention people's skin color and mention other features, but they're not. we're not going to actually have different, you know – identities in the future we're just going to kind of mention skin tone every now and then uh but i think that you know it's a people are always going to have that sense based on your heritage and where you come from and what happens to your ancestors of you know identity based on who your people were which is why zagreb for example becomes an important element in the background of some of these characters because they are holding on to that culture yeah that they never knew a culture that they never knew. One of the things that fascinates me about it, and it comes out again, and and some of this is only revealed more or less indirectly toward the end of the novel, um, is the sense that these are this is a disinherited group. This is a diaspora group. These are people who are living by decisions that their ancestors made, and the fact that they were trapped into this life that they're in by decisions made what two thousand years ago, I guess it's uh, it's about twenty. I figured out the time scale at one time. You gave us some dates toward the end. Yeah, uh, no, I, I did that on purpose so that people would actually, you know, have a, have a, be able to yeah. do that. Yeah, okay. So so we know it's thousands of years in the future, but they're holding on to city identities from uh, what we now is what we know as twenty first century twenty first century world. It's actually not thousands of years. It's it, the date I give is thirty two oh seven or thirty two oh nine. So it's it's about twelve hundred years in the future. And oh, I forgot we were I, in the 21st century already. Never mind. I, I figure they left Earth in the 26th century, maybe. Okay. And what happened is in the 23rd-ish century, what's left of humanity is just living in these city-states that are kind of like – Right. Maybe they're like domed cities kind of because the rest of the planet is kind of uninhabitable. And so their ethnic identity is based on which of these domed cities they came from kind okay. of. And so I, I did work out way too much detail about that. <laughs> but you're still talking about a group of people who are living with decisions that their ancestors made that yeah. they're not entirely happy with. Yeah, which I think describes all of us. Exactly. <laughs> I think that pretty much is the human condition. I don't know. <laughs> it's a cliche that whenever a parent has a child, the moment you've determined the child is healthy, you immediately ask, What's the next? When are you going to have another child? You know, when we had our first child, it was like hours afterwards. So, the city in the middle of the night will be out in a week. 
There will be links in show notes. People can order it. It's a powerful, moving, wonderful book. But just as when you were writing, uh, well, just as when All the Birds in the Sky was out, you were writing Sitting in the Middle of the Night, I assume that you're working on what comes next. Yeah, I mean, uh, I sold this young adult trilogy to Tor, and now they expect me to write it, which is crazy. And uh, <laughs> so I, I handed in the first book of the trilogy uh I guess in late August, and now I'm doing edits on that while also being about halfway through the second book. So you know, wish me luck. It's, <laughs> so again, does it mean you it's, have two you books know, out this year, or I no, I doubt it. I, I I would bet that the first book of the trilogy will come out in 2020. If I was if I was going to bet on on a on a release date, I think that a it's going to take a little while to get it whipped into shape, and b. Um, you know they're going to want to do kind of a rollout for it because it's my first young adult book and it's going to take some time. But yeah, it's as different from all the it's as different from the oh. city in the middle of the night as the city in the middle of the night was from all the words in the sky. It's it's completely different tonally and in terms of the subject matter. And uh, it's again I'm I've bitten off more than I can chew once again. So <laughs> wish me luck. Definitely. And of course, with a little bit of luck, we'll see you in Australia in about three months' time. I think. Yeah, I'm super excited for SwanCon. That's going to be yeah, amazing. Yeah, along with Annalie, which, which will be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's going to be so fun, so awesome. But until then, thank you for making the time to talk to us about Seeing the Middle of the Night. It's, it's a marvelous thank book. Thank you so much. Thank mm-hmm. you for reading it. With, you'll be on a nice tour with this book, which I gather is on your website. Um, that's right. You're, you're actually going to be near near me in Chicago. That bookshop is like 40 miles out west, but I'll try to get out there. I would love to see you there. That would be amazing. And, you know, I, I'll, I fingers crossed. I, I hope that you can make it. Okay. And uh, stay warm. But <laughs> it's up to 20 degrees here today. We're out in shorts. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Okay. Thanks a lot.